0: Welcome. Welcome. welcome, 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 welcome,
1: welcome, welcome to the Vanderbilt Internal Medicine Podcast. This podcast is made by and for our internal medicine residents to enhance their educational experience. The content, while edited by residents, is not verified by hosts or speakers, and they are not content experts on these topics. The content provided by the podcast is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. It should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. We attempt to avoid views of opinion, but all opinions presented are our own and are not represented by the employer. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy podcast. Welcome, welcome
2: back to the, the Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt internal, internal Medicine Podcast. And and Today we have, again, Chief and now Cardiology Fellow, Greg Jackson. Greg, how does it feel to know that you have finally matched?
0: Feels good. I'm excited. Uh, I don't know that I'll claim Cardiology Fellow quite yet. Uh, Future Um, future Cardiology Fellow. But yeah, I'm really (laughs) excited. Thrilled with everyone who matched. We had a great match. Uh, Really excited for everyone, places they're going, and just really excited to see what people do with their careers. Really exciting time.
2: Yeah, I think we had a stellar class. Super happy for all our PGY threes. There's a, it was a lot of euphoria on that day. So it was, it was pretty cool. Hope, hoping to, to be in that room as a, as a PGY three as well. Now yeah. the pressure is on. That's For, right,
1: yeah. uh, for us PGY twos. You can yeah. see
0: a lot of the tension in the match day celebration just like going out the window. Fade away. Past, uh Yeah. It past six months leading up to it.
2: Also very cool seeing everyone put their pin on the map yeah, and see yeah, where they were awesome. going. A lot, yeah. a lot in Tennessee, a lot here. So no, I. That's and pretty exciting.
0: I think people know this, but it was pretty fun to interview coming from Vanderbilt and one seeing how much respect other programs have for folks who come from Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. and then see how many different faculty members are at different big name, great institutions. That's to be cool. Yeah. yeah. That we're Came now. from Vanderbilt. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it's really, it's a fun way to network, really fun way to get to know other programs and really see what a special place it is to train at Vanderbilt. So That's pretty cool. It's
2: That's really, really great. great. So so now you're going to be uh, paying special attention to every EKG that That's comes, right. that comes sure. your way. All when you're those so. .01 troponins I'm <laughs> yeah, very yeah. excited Ooh, about.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yep. Can't wait to consult you next time. Come my year. way. Oh. You're going to get all the, uh,
2: on Morgan, uh, all these different admissions. You're like, yeah, but what was their troponin? That's, <laughs> That's what right. I really care about. When was their last go? Right. Yeah. Uh, I
0: may take the EKGs over the troponin just a personal preference. Very true. <laughs> but yeah. Whatever. We'll uh, take it all.
2: And then, Dr. Pfaff, you want to tell us about your new developments? Oh,
1: I had some big life changes as well. I am now a mother, so big change since the last time we're on the podcast. But. It's clapping and a blow uh, yeah. people's ears out. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Baby came safely in November and uh, now she's, you know, pooping, eating, sleeping as babies do. Wow. Everyone room keeps asking me what it's like. And I think Taylor Swift said it best when she didn't even realize she was speaking about new motherhood, <laughs> but miserable and magical.
2: Wow! Well, congratulations. I'm in awe of both of you. Big, big life accomplishments. I'm just yeah, trying to make what have you it... been doing? Yeah, right? I guess not too much. Yeah, nothing, nothing compared to that. So
1: I did see you uh, at the PGY two retreat. You know, playing some playing some different oh, games. Oh, yes, like... I did get very competitive.
0: So <laughs> I was <Bowling>. very bummed <laughs> to miss out on that.
2: That
1: was it quite was
0: it. Pretty fun. Fine. Yeah,
2: good. I'm just glad that I did got you all beat.
1: Like... Beat any personal bests? Any I, personal I, records? I don't think so.
2: <laughs> Me and John Davis got pretty competitive on the ping pong table, but. He took me down pretty easily. So. Are you a big ping pong <laughs> player? I was upset, no, but he is, yeah. and I discovered that, so. That makes sense, John, yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, I think we'll we'll start getting, moving forward to our first case. Greg, what do we, what do you have for us today?
0: Yeah, this is a great case that was brought by Dr. Kelly, one of our wonderful PGY2s, to our professor rounds, so we worked this up with Dr. Rathmill and uh, the inpatient teams, and it's a case of a 21-year-old gentleman who presented after his family brought him brought him into the hospital after he was found down. He had no significant past medical history, really hadn't followed up with a physician recently because he was so healthy. His family really can't tell us a whole ton, or didn't tell us a whole ton, about the preceding symptoms that brought him in, but said that maybe over the past several days he had become more weak and lethargic around home and just was not doing his normal things. Normally, he's very active. The presenter couldn't, or Dr. Kelly, couldn't remember what, what he did for work, but uh, said that he was kind of active and didn't have any issues mm-hmm. from that standpoint, except for over the past two or three days. The other thing that the family had noticed is that his skin had become a little more yellow, but those were really the only couple of pertinent points that they uh, could, could mention to the, to the admitting team. Really, the rest of his history, like I mentioned, is pretty unremarkable. As far as family history, he has a sister who has lupus. And then a brother that the family reported upon admission um, said that he had recently been admitted with severe anemia and had a splenectomy because of a splenic rupture. Uh, But they didn't really know anything more about that history. Otherwise, his social history was pretty unremarkable. When he came into the uh, emergency department, Uh, He was febrile up to 102, uh, tachycardic up to the 120s. Uh, His blood pressure was fine. He was setting well on room air. Uh, But his exam was remarkable, really, for scleroelictris and and diffuse jaundice. No petechia, um, no purpura, uh, otherwise pretty unremarkable exam. Wow.
2: Very interesting first. uh, Dr. Pop, what are your thoughts about this so far?
1: And I think it's surprising in a 21-year-old definitely makes you think about a lot of different things than maybe mm-hmm. our more typical medicine admissions.
2: Yeah, I think so, too. I almost look at... Twenty-one year olds. I don't see them too often, so they're like my neonates of internal medicine. (laughs) That's right,
0: and our favorite clinic patient, right? Yeah, twenty-one. All right. Well, you're fine. Great. All right. We'll see see you next time. Yeah, Yeah. we don't have
1: that across the street. I think
2: (laughs) oftentimes too, we uh, will put in our H and P's like family history non-contributory because they're eighty and we didn't really ask. Mm -hmm. But I think that's interesting that like social and family history really plays a big role and childhood like illnesses, especially in a twenty-one year old. Yeah. And so that's interesting that he has these other things. And I think the first thing I'm thinking about is some sort of like, he has a history of, like, family history of autoimmunity. Mm-hmm. And then um, I also think of like malignancies and like a 21 year old coming in with just like high fevers and like kind of like uh, diffuse symptoms. So I'm interested to see where this is going. Yeah. Infectious. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Infectious for sure. Definitely. Yeah.
0: When we initially worked through it or started working through it, Um, we talked about, you know, the patient's chief complaint, if you want to call it, although he wasn't complaining of it, was syncope, Mm. and kind of our general approach to syncope. But then we were talking about, you know, we could take syncope from just kind of a broad, general syncope to also adding on a few of the things that he was presenting with, jaundice, jaundice as well as malaise. And so we were talking about cardiovascular things, whether it was arrhythmia, structural component, but thought that... Exactly. <laughs> <I> always <laughs> have to think about that <laughs> first. Gotta start. To heart. <laughs> but you know, we, we later discussed that that progressive time frame of over a couple days of not feeling well and then having the syncope probably wouldn't fit with something acute like an arrhythmia event. Uh, it could be something like heart failure, but he didn't have any other objective signs of heart failure on mm-hmm. exam or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And then talked about something that Dr. Travis Richardson taught us recently in a noon conference, how the presentation of syncope as opposed to cardiac arrest may lean you more towards an arrhythmia or some type of that, uh, some uh, etiology in that regard as opposed to hokum or some other structural Mm. component. But aside from that, we were talking about, you know, like I mentioned, syncope with jaundice and this malaise and anemia was brought up as in particular hemolytic anemia mm-hmm. others brought up why why is he so jaundiced yeah. or, or what's leading to that and so talked about acute liver failure potentially right. you know with all these folks who come in like this you need to think about some type of type of toxic exposure or drug so drug induced liver injury yep in a young patient like did this? he overdose on Tylenol now has acute liver injury mm-hmm. and then additionally i didn't mention this initially but he afterward didn't come right back to and was somewhat confused for several hours afterward and even in the emergency department wasn't completely back to himself. And so we're talking about syncope with jaundice and altered mental status and uh, especially if we're thinking that there was some type of anemia, is this TTP and do we need to look at if there's some type of consumptive process that's going on.
2: I think, yeah. I think we're going to get a lot of information when we get his labs back.
0: That's right. When we were presenting it in Professor Rounds, when we asked what labs anyone wanted the first resident, was like, peripheral smear, I'm ready for it. It was like before any oh. CBC or anything like that. So that's great. Nice. Yeah, so his uh, CBC initially came back at a, a white blood count of 9.5, mm-hmm. a hemoglobin of 2.8, Whoa. platelets of 150, And then his BMP was unremarkable, his creatinine was 0.9, so again to our point of TTP, uh, but that was ruled out. The smear was fairly unremarkable, and I think this is one of the teaching points that I'll make on this case um, that Dr. Sharma taught, um, who's one of our uh, hematologists here and runs the blood bank. This patient was actually an outside hospital transfer, Hmm. and it's unclear if there were... Uh, if any blood was transfused at the outside hospital. Mm-hmm. And her point was that if someone has transfused blood in an outside hospital, that you can't necessarily take weight into um, what the peripheral smear looks like so because you issues. may just be seeing what the transfused blood was. And mm-hmm. so really good from a history standpoint to make sure that we know exactly what's happened at the outside hospital uh-huh. or wherever they're coming from so that we can make the right uh, judgment My, on this patient.
2: I think with a hemoglo- that's probably the lowest hemoglobin I've yeah. ever heard of. Yeah. I've had some threes, somethings but that's... And I think it's probably safe to assume if his hemoglobin was that low, he probably did get a transfusion. Yeah. I think that's important to talk about, too, is that when we get these patients in the ED, the ED does a great job in, in triaging people and stabilizing them but it can make diagnosing things difficult when someone's already been transfused Mm -hmm. and you're really worried about hemolysis because then it it makes it difficult to interpret.
0: So uh, that's a great point. The other labs that were notable for this patient was that the MCV was normal. Again, Mm -hmm. hard to completely interpret Mm -hmm. uh, based on if uh, the patient had a transfusion before, and the RDW was in, uh, in normal range as well. Um, the retic count was elevated, which, again, the RDW is hard to interpret in, in that setting because we're, again, wondering if the patient had been transfused. Right. And then the several other labs were sent out, but the high-yield labs, or the DAT was sent and came back positive. Really? So the patient was ultimately diagnosed with warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. It sounds like this patient had a lot going on.
2: Can you tell us? what are the elements of his case that allowed the primary team to make a diagnosis of warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia?
0: Yeah, essentially it was obviously the severe anemia that he presented with, and then signs of hemolysis, both based on his LDH that was elevated, haptoglobin that was low, um, and then an elevated uh, bilirubin. And then the, the real... Uh, kicker on this was the DAT that came back positive as confirming uh, that this was a a warm autoimmune uh, hemolytic anemia. So Greg, now that
2: we've recognized the syndrome, we're not done yet. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. So talking about treatment for this patient is uh, tricky from the blood bank perspective um, on what type of blood that you're going to give to this patient, especially since there's those antibodies that are there. Um, that will complicate the picture. And so really the best treatment for that is to talk with the blood bank specialist and get the right uh, blood based on the testing that they do. And they'll send several additional tests to the normal, including RH subgroups, KEL, MNS, KID, SS, and the Duffy antigens to determine the best blood products to give to this patient. And so with these folks, it's particularly important that you're in close communication with the blood bank and discussing... Uh, again, which is the right type of blood to transfuse to these patients? This patient's case is really fascinating because, as you'll read in the in the recommendations for treatment of autoimmune hemolytic anemia, uh, prednisone is first line, and then they'll use rituximab to decrease the B cell proliferation to create the antibodies. And this patient received both of those treatments within the first couple of days that he arrived to the hospital. And his hemoglobin went from 2.8 on hospital day one to hemoglobin of 14 by hospital day three or four. And so you can really have a very robust response to the treatment. Again, first line prednisone. And then typically most regimens will include rituximab as well. Greg, do we offer these patients IVIG
2: or PLEX as part of their treatment?
0: Great question. IVIG, and I don't have the data in front of me, but IVIG has shown to have some benefit. Mm-hmm. Dr. Sharma brought up an interesting point about apheresis or plasmapheresis. And these folks, especially in this patient who came up with a hemoglobin of 2.8, to have a successful apheresis, you have to remove a significant amount of blood, which in a patient with a hemoglobin of 2.8 can cause more complications and be dangerous, especially since we're trying to give them blood. But an interesting point that she made is even if you apherese out the uh, antibodies, the experience has shown that after the apheresis is done, there is a tendency for the antibodies to come back and even more prevalent than before. And so apheresis is not typically done in these folks. IVIG can be, but again, first and second line are uh, steroids and rituximab. Hmm.
2: Greg, I'm really just trying to see who else I can put a bass cath into. That's, so. right. That's <laughs> right. That's my first thought.
0: Do you? Do we know
2: why this patient developed this condition, and and what are the typical causes of warm autoimmune hemo- hemolytic anemias?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. That's another thing that we discussed for some time in the professor rounds. Fifty percent of Cases of warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia are idiopathic. Uh, The other 50% are from any grab bag of different etiologies. Often we invoke infectious etiologies, HIV, EBV. Mm -hmm. Jamie had mentioned that there's a case that she had heard about earlier this year with CLL and Dr. Sharma mentioned that that's the most common hematologic malignancy that will result in autoimmune hemolytic anemia. In this patient's case, because of his brothers, it later came out that his brother also had autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and that was the cause for the splenic rupture. And so there's a high suspicion that this patient has a congenital or inherited immune deficiency that's leading to all of this. Unfortunately, after the first round of genetic testing that was performed, that was all negative and he was lost to follow up probably because he was feeling so great great. after steroids and rituximab so we don't have a final kind of cause yeah but that's our yeah. right, leading inclination yep very I, interesting i think
1: just um just as an aside too for some of these other etiologies that we were thinking about some general categories like greg mentioned infectious malignant rheumatologic are some of some of the big ones and that cll like he mentioned can be seen in up to 11 percent of people without autoimmune hemolytic anemia which was really surprising to me when i saw that case because it was, certainly wasn't what first came to mm-hmm. mind for me Lupus is something we should be thinking about in about 10% of these secondary cases, and then can also be seen after allogeneic stem cell transplant and not Hodgkin's lymphoma four to
2: 2% respectively. So if I see someone coming in with this kind of condition, I should be worried about infectious etiologies, malignant etiologies, it sounds like, and then (laughs) be very wary in sending your ANA, but if if you need to, then it it may be appropriate. And then if your broad workup is negative, this may be one of those idiopathic cases. Mm -hmm. And then that I'm assuming will affect treatment because I'm assuming if you have a malignancy, you would want to treat the malignancy to...
0: Yeah, treat the underlying cause. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: That's that's a big theme in, in medicine. Uh treat the underlying cause, which a lot of times can be very difficult. But it's always a
0: nice thing to say on rounds. So, yeah, yeah. Treat yeah. the underlying cause right. and see if this all improves.
2: Exactly. Uh
1: Continue the diagram.
2: <laughs> well, what a great case. That's that's excellent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Really fascinating. Awesome. Really neat to see the response to treatment. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: one of the that is the most impressive um hemoglobin jump I think I've ever heard of.
0: And I'll say that I on initially when the patient was presented with syncope, I went to kind of my classic cardiac, neurogenic, neurologic, other kind of schema that I worked through for syncope, and this was not necessarily on my right. list. He yeah. just
2: didn't have enough gas in the tank yep. to, uh, right. to get blood flow to his brain, pretty wild.
1: So for this first case, Greg, what takeaway points would
2: you like to share with us?
0: Yeah, the first is don't let your blood get down to point. <laughs> yeah,
2: I think that's a good one.
0: Uh, pretty significant uh, decline. Um, Two is to obviously keep a broad differential when you're seeing someone with syncope. But I think one of the fun things about this case is taking our schema for syncope and then modifying it based on the rest of the patient presentation. So adding in his general malaise over the last couple days and then also jaundice and how that helped narrow it down. Um, Obviously thinking about uh, the causes of hemolytic anemia. Um, and, uh, and this patient, how the DAT really helped us to secure the diagnosis of warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And remembering the nuances between IVIG and apheresis, and then obviously the first-line treatment for, for AIHA, uh, which is prednisone and then rituximab.
1: So Greg, do you have another case for us?
0: Yes, another great case presented by Taron Boyle in morning reports. So this is a 43 year old female who was in with hemoptysis. Uh, she reported there it was about a half a teaspoon the morning that she presented to the, the emergency department. But other than that had not had any other episodes of hemoptysis. Said she had about a, a week of URI symptoms a month ago, but otherwise has been doing well. And really no other pertinent findings on review of systems. She has a past medical history of endometriosis, asthma and migraines and as far as medications, takes albuterol, Advair, Allegra, Flonase, and really her family history and social history are unremarkable as far as this case is concerned. Initially with her exam, her vitals, she was afebrile, her heart rate was 100, her blood pressure was 142 over 86, and she was fortunately breathing 100% on room air. I think this is a good place to stop to talk about one of the important things in anyone who's coming in with hemoptysis, and that's trying to differentiate if this is large volume hemoptysis versus small volume hemoptysis. Not only is it important for your management, but it'll also help you determine different etiologies of hemoptysis. So the classic teaching is that 500 cc's or more of blood is classified as large volume hemoptysis. However, I recall in the MICU kind of quoting that to either the fellow or the attending, and they say, that's all right and good, I feel fine about that, but what I really care about is their oxygenation status. And so if anyone is hypoxic due to the hemoptysis, that will also classify as large volume hemoptysis. So a couple of things to keep in mind when you're getting the history from the patient, and then initially when you're looking at the vital signs, and in particular their O2 sets.
1: So, so what did you see on exam?
0: Pertinent findings on exam were really only in the pulmonary system. There was scattered expiratory wheezes that seemed consistent with her prior asthma, but had normal work of breathing on room air. There was no cyanosis, strider, or crackles, and really the rest of the exam was unremarkable. Her labs similarly were fairly unremarkable. Normal CBC, normal BMP, and LFTs. The most notable thing was on her diff from her CBC. She had an eosinophil percentage of 7% with an absolute count of 640.
2: Ooh, The plot
0: thickens. I can see Jared just (laughs) chomping Uh, at the bit over here to talk about this. So what are you... What are you thinking about or how are you approaching yeah, this, Jared? Yeah, so I
2: think, first of all, I think hemoptysis is one of those chief complaints that should perk your ears up and make you pay attention. The reason being is like bleeding into the lungs. You don't have to bleed very much into the lungs to cause some serious health issues and oxygenation issues. So these people are always very concerning. I think the other thing that we should always think about is when you get a chest x-ray that has multifocal airspace opacities, you should always go back to, is this water or like pulmonary edema? Is it pus? Or or some sort of infection. And then the other big categories is this blood. And I don't think we think about that enough because we always think about, oh, this person has pneumonia, but that should be considered. And then the good thing about this patient is that they're not hypoxic. They look stable. It's only a, a few teaspoons their platelets are normal, they're not anemic. So all of those are reassuring things.
1: One other thing that I think about after seeing a case of anaplastic thyroid cancer is just not only anatomical structures of our airway, but those that are near it. And if there Mm. is malignancy or some other process creating invasion into your trachea or other airway spaces, that that could be a culprit.
0: That's great. Oftentimes we will get these patients from the emergency department or wherever they're coming in. Maybe we're in the emergency department initially seeing them. And as internal medicine doctors, our first thought is, all right, what's on the differential? What do I need to think Mm -hmm. about before? What should I be doing? And I think this is one case where you want to go see the patient and think about what you should do first. So if you go in and they're actively having hemoptysis, you want to localize which side it's coming from, either, as Jared mentioned, from the chest x-ray or any imaging that you have. And what you want to do is put that lung down so that the blood will flow to gravity and keep the depend where it's bleeding, it can go to that lung and keep your other mm-hmm. lung inflated so that you can oxygenate appropriately. And then obviously if you need to intubate these patients, you're gonna try to mainstem intubate the lung that is not bleeding. Uh, and so a couple things, one, for you to consider in the emergency department or as you're admitting them overnight, but two, also if you need to talk with the ICU fellow, That's going to be one of the first couple questions that they're going to ask you about as well. Do we have imaging? Which side are they bleeding on? So that they are thinking, what are the next steps that I need to do if something were to happen here? It goes without saying that also checking INR, other either pro or uh, anticoagulable factors, just to make sure that there's nothing that we need to reverse to stop the bleeding.
2: Yeah. And I think also to getting a UA is helpful. There's a lot of pulmonary renal syndromes. So if they have hemoptysis, and also they have hematuria. That's something that will very quickly narrow your differential. I'll
0: get into what this case uh, ended up being and clarify some of the imaging that we got. But Jared, do you have an approach for working through hemoptysis?
2: Oh, yes. Thank you. I'm glad you asked. So I'm going to actually give credit to uh, Frameworks of Internal Medicine, which is one of my favorite books that I try to use by Dr. Mansoor but he has a framework for hemoptysis that kind of breaks it down into basically three main categories. So cardiovascular causes, actual pulmonary causes, and then just a grab bag of other. So it's not always a problem with the lungs. So a lot of, I mean, yeah, with everything is about the lungs. (laughs) Let me be clear. But so PE and heart failure are two very common causes of hemoptysis, and that's more of an obstructive cause. And then Thinking about blood vessels in the cardiovascular system, so vasculitides and thinking of pulmonary capillaritis, that's a huge category. And then valvular disease, especially if you have like severe, I think mitral uh, mitral stenosis, having um, that back up into the lungs. And then if you have any AVMs that can cause hemoptysis. And then going to pulmonary causes, he breaks it down into problems within the airway versus the actual lung parenchyma. So you can just have general inflammation of the large airways with anything that can cause a bronchitis, also bronchiectasis, and then large malignancies that can bleed into the airway as well as if the malignancy is invading into one of the blood vessels or bronchial arteries, that would be very concerning. And then for parenchymal causes, just pretty bad pneumonias if you have a lung abscess, TB, invasive fungal infections, all of those things can cause hemoptysis. And I think the big thing to think about too is it's helpful to figure out the source. Obviously we said, uh, treat the underlying cause. So if you have something that's more of a a vascular, like a a structural cause, uh, getting like a CT bronchial artery angiogram uh, is helpful because that can pinpoint where the bleeding might be coming from. And then IR can actually embolize those things where if it's more a systemic thing like a vasculitis, uh, PE, or like a lung infection, you're obviously gonna treat that very different um, than a structural cause. And then finally, you can have just very very weird other causes, but one of them he lists is idiopathic pulmonary hemosiderosis, which I've never actually heard of, but that if, if you've worked up these, all these other things, then there could be just an idiopathic cause. So kind of going back to this case, Greg, what did this patient end up having?
0: So two other fun ones that I'll mention just because I I believe several years ago there's a case report of essentially a bronchial Dufay's lesion um, that led to obviously large volume massive hemoptysis and in this patient I actually really thought this was going to be catamenial hemoptysis mm-hmm. because of her endometriosis I was not right again that usually <laughs> happens wow. but it was fun to think about anyway this this patient ended up having. Uh, ended up getting a CT scan that showed a 2.1 centimeter, what looked like mass-like lesion in her right upper lobe. And then the CT chest revealed a right upper lobe cavitary lesion with slightly thickened irregular walls. And within the cavity, there was a rounded, partially calcified material surrounding by a thin crescent of air that again measured about 2.7 centimeters. The appearance of all this was... Uh, most suggestive of pulmonary aspergillosis, and subsequent serologic studies confirmed that this was indeed aspergillosis.
2: Wow. That's so cool. <laughs> great case.
0: Yeah.
1: What a great case.
2: So that must have been the cause of the eosinophilia then, going back to that.
0: You got it. And and I think a couple of interesting points about this case, and, and for those of us who remember back to step one, if we haven't seen mm. uh, pulmonary aspergillosis or had had any experience with aspergillosis during residency is that there are several different ways that aspergillosis can cause problems. And three that I'll mention here are, one, pulmonary aspergillosis, which is essentially the invasive spectrum of the disease. Um, it can be anywhere from indolent to invasive aspergillus infections and can be acute versus chronic. I think a lot of us would think about kind of like what Jared was saying, of asp- aspergillus causing a hypersensitivity type reaction. Mm-hmm. So the ABPA or allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, which yes, is a mouthful. And we'll talk a little bit about that and, and the eosinophil count there. But then the radiologic confirmation in this patient is that she actually had an aspergilloma um, in a cavitary lesion. And, and, in, and in my mind, the way that I'm thinking about this is, well, great that we nailed the aspergilloma, but where is that cavitary lesion coming from and how did how, how did the that that set up obviously the aspergilloma do we need to be thinking about other causes for cavitary lesions mm-hmm. such as tb vasculitic processes um, and this patient fortunately had neither one of those and it was thought that the cavitary lesions were likely secondary to her underlying chronic lung disease from asthma mm-hmm. and and probably having chronic pulmonary aspergillosis. Perfect. So another point that I thought was really interesting uh, that Taryn Boyle taught us about this case is that is when we should be thinking about ABPA in, in patients with asthma. And the prevalence in asthmatics is, is anywhere around 10 to 13%. Hmm. And it's associated with accelerated lung function decline, poorly controlled asthma despite optimal therapy, and fleeting infiltrates on imaging. And so something for us to keep in mind in folks that we know are on good treatment for asthma but are still really having a difficult time with their disease. We, you can make the diagnosis in uh, by testing and also by imaging findings. You only need two out of three of these to make the diagnosis. A positive Ig aspergillus, imaging findings that are consistent with as, aspergillosis, an eosinophil count greater than 500 or an IgE greater than 1000. And the reason that it's important to make the diagnosis, especially in asthmatic patients, is that the treatment will vary if indeed you find it. So you're not going to keep treating their asthma with more and more um, inhalational treatments, but you actually really need to treat uh, Aspergillus with an antifungal therapy, and it's usually itraconazole for about three to six months, and then based on the IgE level, can also use prednisone. So really, really important consideration for us to have in the hospital, but also in our outpatient clinics as we're managing these folks mm-hmm. and trying to understand all the factors that go into their asthma. I think
2: that's fascinating, and I think that's also uh, important just uh, to get, make sure you get a CBC with diff on patients who have yeah. asthma-like symptoms or reactive airway disease, obstructive lung disease, because that can help you guide treatment. Uh, Greg, do you want to give us some takeaway points about this case?
0: I think big takeaway points for uh, this case are, one, recognizing small versus large volume hemoptysis, and the differential is Jared, so brilliantly pointed out, <laughs> I don't know about that. and things that we need to be thinking about there. And then, again, our initial approach in management of these patients, where they need to be going, whether it's the floor or the ICU, where the bleeding's coming from, and how that will guide our, our treatment decisions. And then as far as aspergillosis, I think for the majority of us, not just during residency but in our career, is thinking about this disease in asthmatics like uh, Taren Boyle taught and thinking of if they are not well-controlled, is that something that I need to be thinking about and recognize that that can be an etiology leading to worsening of their disease.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us and teaching us today, Greg. And everyone, please join us again next time on the podcast.
0: Thanks, everyone. Uh, really great being with you. And just from all the chiefs, we'd like to tell you how much we appreciate all the hard work you do. Um, please let us know if there's anything we can do for you.
2: Awesome. Thanks a lot, Greg.